Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt. Welcome once again to Tax Justice Warriors. I am your co-host, William Schmidt, Clinic Director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Legal Aid of Western Missouri. And I'm Andrew Belter, LITC Director at Wisconsin Judicare in the Northwoods. Nice. Okay. So we have been chatting. We've brought up a little group of topics that, that we were thinking of. So we may not have a lot to say about each one, but we we might just do a little bit of popcorn going from one to the next. So I'm going to start out with some updates that came out from the IRS. For one thing, there was a revision to the collection due process paperwork, and then an update on local standards. So I, I know with the collection due process paperwork, there is the question that comes up about what the IRS accepts and how long they give for changing from the old form to the new form. And I, I'll admit I don't have it too handy at the moment, but I did kind of mentally note that, okay, from now on, we need to just be submitting the new form, but there was some discussion on the ABA listserv. So I wanted to bounce that off you, Andrew. What are some thoughts that you have? Are you talk and you I thought you said CDP in there. Are you saying oh sorry, the um offer and compromise. Um, okay, you you had me quickly yeah, yeah. Googling. <laughs> I've, I've had I've had collection due process on the brain, so Maybe I, I did say that. So yes, offer and compromise forms. I guess allegedly the, the grace period is 30 days. So April 25th to May 25th. And I had one or two where I had the old form, but I didn't want to risk it. So I just got it updated and, you know, a couple days difference. I, I figure I'll just go with and get the new form and then I can list the updated standards too while I'm at it because otherwise I would have had to redo the whole form anyways and submit the old the old one so I played it safe and just updated the entire thing but it would be interesting to see if people are successful with the grace period and gain it accepted because you know sometimes the the processing of them doesn't go as smooth as we like and hope yeah, I think from my experience, I don't know that the offer examiners have really come back and said, oh, you were using an old form or a new form. I think I think a decent amount of them realize the processing time it takes. And I don't know that, that so many of them get hung up on which form you were using as long as it seemed like that was the valid form at the time you submitted it. But... Uh, maybe maybe other people have different experiences, but in in general, I'm planning to use the new form and, and new paperwork for for what we're submitting going forward. I don't I don't think we had too many ready to go at the at the transition time, so we'll just pick up with the new form and and go from there. But I I wanted to 
note that the the local standards changed and in looking everything over it it seemed like the amounts increased across the board for for taxpayers what they could include for local standards not just for offering compromise but for currently not collectible and I mean, I don't think it hurts to use those in calculating innocent spouse either when when figuring out the person's expenses. I, I think that's that's a good tip to to use those guidelines, even, even though it doesn't really say certain guidelines on what to use with innocent spouse. I, I think that's um, not bad to do, but I think in general, just with inflation and, and the way things are going financially in the country that I think it's a little telling that the IRS local standards just went up for in, in pretty much every category. So I think they were giving more, more leeway to taxpayers because I, I think it's maybe an indicator that the times are tough for, for some people. So I think it's good in general that that there's more available through the local standards. Now I have a question for you. So I have some offer and compromise appeals going on right now. Appeal conference, let's see, 17th and another one on the 18th. Will they use the new standards or are they the standards locked in at what was submitted at the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess they would use the new standards, but I mean, that's, that is certainly something debatable. I mean, I don't, you know, frankly, I don't know that a slow processing time with the IRS should be held against a taxpayer, but I, I could see where that, that might happen, where, where with appeals, they're saying, no, the, these were the numbers in place at the time, and, and so we're going to enforce those. But in, I, I don't know that I've seen it to, to really know what is going to happen in, in your experience. Are, are your clients on the line that using the new numbers would help, or, or, is, or is that just an intellectual question? It would help them. So I'm going to ask, of course, but... I don't know what their rules are. It's, I'm sure they'll tell me. Yeah, yeah. You might as well make that argument at least. And, you know, hey, these are the new local standards and, and this would help my client. Yeah, and related to that, I looked up and one of those appeals, I sub there for OIC appeals, I submitted the appeal, a reconsideration and appeal one on January 14th and one on March 3rd. So one was one was two months about, the other one four months. That's not terrible, turnaround time. And we, we were chatting just a little bit ago about turnaround times. And like I have a appeals conference tomorrow. It, it seems like these are, are around lunchtime. But yeah, that tomorrow for a tax court case that the petition was filed at the beginning of the year, you know, right around New Year's, like January 2nd or 3rd. What? And then the, uh, yeah, the appeals conference for the tax court case is tomorrow. So beginning of March, so roughly a four month period.
period. And I was letting you know about a collection due process request we submitted in October and then getting the notice now. So roughly seven months later for the end of this month, having the, the conference call. So so I, I, I want to rewind real quick. Sure. You submitted a petition in January and already have an appeal conference. Yeah. I submitted a petition in August and just got an appeals conference in April for one case. One was in October, still no appeals conference. That one was kind of interesting because they never requested the filing fee. And I came across it and, and just thought like, oh, this is different. So I filed the application for file, waiver of filing fee six months after we petitioned. I never saw that before. Uh, and then, yeah, November petition, no appeals conference yet. Yeah, I, I don't know if things are uniform when it comes to to the timing with, with appeals conferences. Is yours an S or R case? Um, probably an S case, but I need to double check. And related to that, on the listserv, I know that they were talking about the what people choose S or R, and some people always chose R. And I'll admit, I always choose S. Yeah, I've I've leaned toward choosing the S cases, but I I have to admit, it's it's an S case, by the way. Oh, they just like you more. That's all it is. I I have no idea, but I'll I'll admit a decent amount of of our tax court cases I don't think would be appealed. So I haven't always thought that that it would be necessary to have it as a regular case and and so lean toward filing it as an S case. But I forget the reasoning why why the one person said that that they liked regular cases, but I mean to me a, a big part of it is is certainly whether you're going to appeal it or not. I think time is a big factor for me because our cases just have so much more that you have to put into them. And I don't know if it's worth the extra, you know, there, we only have so much time. And if you can, you know, cut down on the time needed to, for the case, normally I'm, I choose that. But, and I only enter appearance on, you know, good cases, basically winners. I, I don't really enter appearance on ones that are questionable. I yeah, can't I mean, find. I can't find the. I'm looking. I'm, I was trying to look through the list of real quick, but I can't find it. Sure. I mean, a, a lot of times the the cases are really about substantiation that that we're filing on. So to me, it's you know, what's the point in filing it as a regular case then if you're eventually going to settle based on based on how much substantiation they're providing. To, to support their case, their cases. And you can always change it, right? You you can file a motion with the tax court to change it, but I don't, it's not, it's not a guarantee that you can get it changed from one to the other. So I mean I, I treat it more as being locked in, but I mean there there is that possibility. I I just wouldn't take it as a given that that the judge would would grant an order that that yet yes it should be changed from small to regular that's true that's true but i see it more the frustration being like oh this is a case that 
there should be some judicial interpretation of and that that the person filed it pro se as a small case and when clinics have found out about it saying like well then it it should be changed to a regular case and you know then is the judge going to grant that order is the irs going to object to to a change from small to regular in that circumstance but i don't know i i feel like the average case coming into a tax clinic is a deficiency case where the taxpayer has been audited in certain areas and they've got some documentation to dispute it it's likely going to settle so i'm not not so worried about it being a regular case that that could be appealed or would even get to trial yeah i guess that's what i meant by is the extra work in our case worth it because I'm thinking of all pretty simple ones where you send them some documents and that normally they're like, okay, this, yeah, this fits what we're looking for. Yeah. And oh, uh, they're, they're, okay. We're kind of jumping around between topics, but another one was with offer and compromise. How far back do you go with filing tax returns with submitting an offer and so there was a, a question about that on the listserv. And at first I thought it was a pretty simple answer of, of generally just going back six years and doing that for the taxpayer to be compliant. But there seemed to be a little bit of debate there. And so, so what did you want to weigh in on the topic? I only do six years and I've never been asked for more. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I've had clients who technically needed to have more done, but I've not, I've never been asked to go beyond that. Yeah, I, th I think it's, I think there are some, some times whether there'd be questions about how, I mean, I, I don't know if there'd be concerns of fraud or, or what exactly, but there are definitely cases where the IRS can come back and say there should be more tax returns filed, but I don't know for the the average tax clinic client it's it's generally they might have been a non-filer for several years they you know there's a question if they had enough income that they would even be required to file and so a lot of times it's it's pretty easy to get them compliant or put in a statement saying this person did not file for x number of years because they only received social security or whatever the case may be. So I, I would tend to agree with you that unless the IRS is giving some pushback on, on which tax returns should be filed, then I, I would just go with six and, you know, see, see if there are any other concerns that, that crop up. And the tax filing requirement is, I just need to vent about one of my cases real quick, where maybe I mentioned it to you, this, clients started day trading for some reason and didn't really know what was going on all of a sudden the the trade show up on it on when i pulled the transcript as like a million dollars of of proceeds and a million dollars of cost basis and so i thought no way he needs to file right because there the, it showed that he lost money but then all of a sudden, 
whatever company must have started reporting Bitcoin and the Bitcoin proceeds, but not the Bitcoin cost basis, which made it look like there was a fair amount of income. How frustrating is that? Like you would think that they would report the cost basis, right? Yeah, I think in general, there are some clients who just get get caught up in bad reporting to the IRS and then it winds up being on the taxpayer to sort things out. Yeah, and because we're working with low-income clients who can't hire a tax return preparer to go through the day trades and figure out the cost basis, I, I would argue that he really doesn't have a filing requirement, but I don't know if that would work. Yeah, that I know there was a client that we went through her the stocks that were reported and I think it wound up being an audit reconsideration request that we sent in but I mean those those are taking forever now but yeah it's I think it's like we're dealing with the wife and if if I remember right the husband has dementia or or something so I mean doesn't he's not useful in in explaining things she she wasn't involved in the financial affairs so we're just reviewing the the financial paperwork and then trying to explain you know yeah like you said the basis and and so on to the IRS that you know hope, hoping we can clear things up for for these elderly people with IRS problems it's frustrating. I, I can imagine that the taxpayers are just overwhelmed by it and they don't have the resources really to take care of it right away. They have to apply to one of our clinics and hopefully we're capable to, to do it. But some stuff is just beyond what we can handle. Yeah. Yeah. With, with that one, I, I was kind of had volunteers just kind of develop the arguments and and do the research and, and basically organize all the all the stock trades and, and so on. But yeah, it's it can be a lot of work for for a clinician and you know definitely overwhelming for some of the taxpayers. I mean I, I don't think I think she's more afraid of what's happening with the IRS and I don't know that that we can sufficiently explain it to her necessarily what's going on but just trying to to let her know hey we we have sent things into the irs and and we will let you know what they say and and work with you but yeah and it does not help like you said that take taking them forever to process things which is understandable yeah still 2020 tax returns that some of my clients are waiting on processing well hope hopefully by the end of the year that they are all processed i mean that's yeah. that's been the promise that that the irs is giving so we will we will find out if if they are able to stick the landing there now i'm gonna bounce another idea off you while we're talking so some of my 2018 my clients 2018 returns i had, I had a couple of them for claiming a refund sent in last year middle of the year so i thought no way do i need to send this certified you know, it, it there it'll get there, it'll get processed in six, seven months. All of a sudden, April comes around, and I I think, oh, I should probably check on these. So I checked on them, and there was there were two or three of them 
that had no entry for the 2018 yet. So I, I thought like, well, what do I do? <laughs> and so I sent in copies certified before the due date, writing duplicate return at the top of it, just to have a backup, just in case they say, oh, you didn't meet the filing required, the uh, claim for refund statute of limitations. So do you think that was a smart move? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, it, it reminded me of actually a friend that had contacted me that, I mean, I, I forget what kind of issue he had on his 2018, might have been the premium tax credit now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, but he, he needed something fixed and wasn't able to get to a tax preparer before then. And, and so I said, well, file an amendment, you know, yeah, send it certified so that, that you have it by the due date. And even if your amendment will need to be fixed, at least it's filed by the due date. So I don't know if, I mean, there, there's more instruction to give, but I mean, I, I think at minimum getting something in by the due date to, to not have to worry about that deadline. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're recovering your bases there. I have no reason to believe that they didn't get the first submissions. It's just that they didn't process it yet. Yeah, and it's it's tough to say whether, you know, I mean, we we never know whether it's sitting and waiting to be processed or, you know, there there was some kind of foul up and, you know, then then they're coming back saying, well, oh no, we never received it. So yeah, I, I think you did the right thing to to cover your bases. I don't know where I thought I, I thought. I don't know where I heard about the duplicate return writing on the tax return, but that's a thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You, if you're if you're resubmitting one, you should common courtesy or appropriate to write duplicate return. Yeah, I mean that that you're trying to make sure that they're not trying to process it twice, but you know, also letting them know that hey, this is the second version I've mailed to you, basically. So yeah, that's that's a proper thing to do. Okay, giving me confidence. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm kind of blanking if we had any other topics to to review. I mean, we covered a fair amount. I guess one thing I wanted to circle back to. You mentioned in the innocent spouse expenses to show financial hardship. Do you know off the top of your head? Is that I know it's one of the categories are one of the elements they look at, not, not elements, but one of the factors they weigh. But how much weight does that one get? How do you mean? Because I just have clients fill out the income and expense and I don't even really pay attention to, to too much. I more pay attention to the factors like knowledge about the income, did they benefit, uh, definitely abuse, things like that. The income and expense to show financial hardship, I, I don't I don't pay attention to that one that that closely. Like I, well, it it is a a factor to take into consideration. So, I I do think it is better weighted for a low income client that that they can show that they are lower lower income. I I don't remember how much discussion there is of assets, but. Certainly, there is more sympathy for low-income clients as compared to a, a higher income. 
where everything might be weighing in their favor, but if if this is basically a rich person who is requesting innocent spouse, then that may not weigh in their favor. But it's it's tough to say. I I mean I I do look at it as kind of a factor test, but I do think if there is a heaviest weighted factor, it is knowledge that that the client or I think it's abuse because abuse trumps knowledge sometimes. Yeah, I mean maybe it's but that's off topic. Yes. So yeah, I I. Yeah, I know it's a factor test. I know that they do. They don't count up like, oh, t- they don't tally it up. It's they're weighed differently. And income and expense, you know, I I've looked at, I've read a couple cases for innocent spouse and had I think two trials for innocent spouse, and the income and expense just didn't seem like it came up very much. Yeah, I mean, I I I think. The most I've seen in a tax court case would, I mean, they, the judge might go down the list of factors. And so, I mean, there, there might be a short paragraph analyzing that. So I, I think it's just thrown into the mix, but I, I do think it's something when you're evaluating an innocent spouse client, just thinking through like, how sympathetic are they if if do they do they come across on paper as someone of financial means or not i i, th- I think is how i would look at it of like do do they seem like a low income person or a high income person and so that that may not i don't think it's necessarily the deciding factor in the case but if if you're trying to garner as much in favor of your client as you can, you know, certainly the low income, low asset client is going to look better than, oh, this person is rich and could pay off their innocent spouse debt anyway, but we're, we're still submitting it because there's a question of abuse in the marriage or, or something like that. I mean, I, I, I think I think at least you get on shakier ground. I don't. I don't know that it, you would lose the case, but it, it's certainly something to to keep in the mix when you're reviewing the case. Probably did not pay enough attention to that. I mean, my cases turned out fine. So, but moving forward, I should probably be conscious, conscientious, conscious of the sympathy card and factor in some of these cases. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the low-income clients that that are going to a tax clinic, I I think are in a good position, at least financially, that I I definitely think the question is, what knowledge did they have? I mean, that's that's more the critical thing I'm I'm focused on. But if, if a person's in private practice where you are dealing with medium to high income clients, I think it's more something to to keep in mind and, and really evaluate on, on an innocent spouse case. That makes sense. You know, I'm not saying it, it doesn't affect low-income tax clinic cases, but it, it happens less than, than private practice. Thank you. Thank you for 
Yeah, I mean that's 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 at least my opinion on on the topic. But cer certainly, as I was evaluating the factors, I was like, well, yeah, I mean somewhere in there, I got the impression like, okay, innocent spouse is is really meant more for low people with less financial availability of income or assets, and you know whether it always plays out that way. I think it's better to be hitting that target where your client seems sympathetic, but that makes sense. So that's that's why I was saying when putting down their expenses that trying to you know, or income and expenses that that I, I don't think it hurts to use the local standards like you would use for currently not collectible or offering compromise to make sure that they they look like you're I mean, that, that at least gives us some boundaries for what to shoot for, for income and expenses, yeah. rather than just putting whatever numbers down for innocent spouse. Well, I don't think I have anything else to discuss other than this is my last podcast, because as you know, Bill, uh, but I'll just put it on the podcast right now. I'm joining Iris Council's office next month. So I will not be able to join you in the future. Yeah, you you will be missed, Andrew. So it's it's been a pleasure having you go from occasional guest to co-host. And I, I was hoping to bring some good discussion and a few laughs as well. So it's I knew you were the the man to do that. So brought you Thank on board. You. No, I'm gonna miss I'm I'm gonna miss the LITC work. Are you, just thinking about helping people and then it's a whole different mindset that I'm going to be going into. It's different. I don't think it's really sunk in yet how great the LITC community is and just going to the IRS where you, I hope I, and I think that it will be that same way in the office I'm going to, but you just never know because I'm not there yet. Right. And, and you are, going to the Indianapolis office. Is that right? Yes, the Indianapolis office. I think there's like Indiana Legal Star or LITC. I don't know. I was kind of trying to creep on the Indiana LITCs, but I'm sure I'll run into them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as close with that section of the country, so I, I don't even know offhand which which clinics might have that coverage area. but. But yeah, I I want to wish you well, Andrew. We've we've had some different chats about about your transition. So yeah, best of luck with your your current cases and um, in the future. I I hope we can keep in touch and and cross paths. But but yeah, do do want to wish you the best for thank you in the future. I appreciate it for sure. So we'll we'll see. What other changes if if I do much different with the format of of the podcast, but it's it's been a pleasure having you, Andrew. And so thank you once for all of the discussions and for today. So on on that note, thank you and take care and good luck to everyone else with your taxes and controversies and take care. Don't forget about new applications. Or or the NCC non compete stuff that's due in a month, I believe, right? 
Yeah, I, I think so that, that yeah, it's, um, Andrew is referring to low-income tax clinics have either new or continuing or renewal grants going on at this point. So different people have, have their particular deadlines when, when it comes to their particular grants. So that's, that's something to keep in mind and, and remind you with, with your clinics. So definitely stay current on your paperwork, everyone, and keep your, keep your grant going. Okay. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.